Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. In 1871, the seaside town of Brighton, England, saw one of the more bizarre cases of the Victorian age play out when a lady of the town, Miss Christiana Edmonds, found her romantic feelings for a local doctor knocked back. As the pain of the unrequited love affair became too much, Christiana attempted and failed to commit murder and then, in a perverse effort to clear her name, decided to carry out a mass poisoning campaign. This is Dark Histories where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 10 of Dark Histories. I hope you're all doing very well. Today's episode is a really fun one, or I found it really fun, because it was set in my city, which is great. I think it's the first Dark Histories that I've done that's actually been set entirely in my city there's definitely we've done episodes that have been sort of around the city and had like elements to do with the city um but this one is is fully like immersed in in, in you know where i grew up it was really interesting for me like uh, almost every address that i looked up was i had history of going there and things like that because a lot of my like commercial buildings now and pubs and things like that uh, like pubs shops restaurants things like this so i had like um essentially like t- like ties and memories of every single place in this episode which was really weird but a lot of fun um so yeah it's a great episode it's a bit strange you might notice that this episode is coming out i mean i'm recording this on sunday evening and it should be out on sunday evening so i'm a little bit behind basically um apologies if this does find you a little bit later than the normal time so yeah with that in mind um let's get to it First of all, of course, as always, just want to say thank you to all the new patrons. We got Nyla, Mark, Amy, Karen, Anna, Matt, Hannah, Eddie, Nicole, Christy, Melissa, Lauren, Leon, Kayleen, Stella, Magpie Faye, Sydney, Thomas, Serenity, Paul and Emily. Thank you very much. Um, it's incredible. The support I've had I, I think especially recently since the whole lockdown business, I think people have really helped me a lot. Um, so, yeah, really appreciate this. It's always support. It's, it's, it's super kind. Um, and always, like, for all the patrons and everyone else who supports the show in various ways, thank you very much. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. This episode is Christiana Edmonds, The Chocolate Cream Killer. In the latter half of the 19th century, Brighton, a small seaside town situated directly beneath London on the southeast coast of England, was a town pitched in the centre of a boom in population, culture and economy. Previously buoyed in the mid-18th century, after Richard Russell published his book championing the curative properties of bathing in seawater, and closely followed by the arrival of the Prince Regent in 1783, 
The town found itself very much in the national spotlight. Of all the weekend getaways situated on the coasts of England, few could keep up with the burgeoning reputation of the fashionable town, whose new royal links and gaggle of dignitaries catapulted the resort as the place to be. New streets crammed with housing popped up overnight throughout the 1780s as theatres and markets were built in the streets surrounding the newly erected Royal Pavilion's summer house and gardens. As the 19th century dawned, tourism intensified and new hotels continued to spring up along Brighton's busy seafront, month by month, year by year. The promenades saw crowds of people whiling away the days in leisure, whilst the lucky few with the means bought beachside changing huts and took to the sea via their dipping machines, pulled into the water by horse and carts. As the town grew ever more opulent and extravagant, so too did the buildings, a practice that was firmly reflected with the rebuilding of the Royal Pavilion in 1815 that saw the Prince's summer home reimagined and rebuilt as a vast, utterly eccentric oriental palace, complete with Indian-style architecture and Chinese-style decor. With leisure as a central attraction and money being thrown around with abandon, the town saw further grand building projects, such as the first purpose-built pleasure pier in the British Isles, along with grand theatre halls and beachside bandstands all become a reality. In 1841, the railways secured the town's tremendous growth, which by now had seen it turn from a small fishing village with a population of 2,000 to a sprawling town of over 40,000 people in less than a century. This was a figure that would eventually double over the next half a century. Aside from the residents, the new train line brought tourists directly from London to the tune of over 250,000 visitors per year. The town was nothing short of a magnet for those looking to start a new life. Its trendy allure and promise of a life shaped by whichever pleasures you might wish for drew people in from around the country, a trait that the city has never lost. Writing in 2005, Woodrow Phoenix wrote of the city and its residents, Behind London's back, or maybe, I don't know, over its shoulder, Brighton gets on with its business. The business of magnetism. The rootless, the curious, the feckless, the loveless, the wanderers, the daytrippers, the lovers and the haters. The crazies and the weirdos, the oddballs and the outlaws. The bucket and spade brigade. They take the train as far as it goes to see what's at the end of the line. Some people take a look and go back. Some people stay, and they rattle around like peas in a tin. If you tipped England up, everything loose would roll down here. Though this statement was written in modern times, the commentary was equally as true in Victorian Britain. The Prince Regent may have been the town's earliest and most high-profile outsider who had fled to Brighton as an escape from court life in London in the 18th century, but it had set a trend that many more have since followed. One such member of Brightonian society who had rolled into town during the spring of 1867, was Christiana Edmund, a positively loveless oddball, accompanied by her mother, Anne. The pair had moved to Brighton after a family tragedy and were seeking to start afresh, and like so many, had chosen Brighton as the place for them to be. On a cool morning, in late March 1871, four years after her arrival in Brighton, Christiana Edmunds walked into Spring Gardens and bought a paper from Benjamin Coultrop, a young boy who had bought the papers from one of the town's central newsagents to resell around town. Christiana made small talk with the boy and then offered him a bag of chocolates bought from a popular confectioner named Maynard's based in West Street and well known throughout the town where it had operated for over 18 years. Unable to believe his luck, 
Benjamin quickly scoffed them down, saving only one for his friend, Henry Diggins, though Henry was a little less enamoured after he threw the chocolate cream into his mouth and then quickly spat it out once he had tasted a vile, bitter note. If Benjamin was annoyed by his friend for wasting a perfectly good chocolate, it was a feeling that wouldn't have lasted for too long, as within the hour, he began feeling very ill indeed. He noticed at first a strong, burning sensation in his throat, which quickly developed into severe nausea, cramps, and a tight stiffening of his limbs. Collapsing at home, his mother took him to hospital two days later after he had shown no signs of recovery. Unsure of what could have been wrong with the boy, doctors treated him as an outpatient, and after a week of rest, Benjamin was well on the path to recovery. This was great news for the Coltrop family, but a real problem for Christiana Edmonds, for she had poisoned the chocolates intentionally, and Benjamin's recovery was not quite what she had planned. William Edmonds was born in 1801 in the seaside town of Margate on the tip of England's southeastern coast. Just like Brighton, Margate had boomed in the 18th century with the popularity of seaside bathing. Unlike Brighton, however, it had not enjoyed the presence of a royal summer house, and as such, it had not had quite the same astronomic rise. Still, it was far and away from being a slum, and it had seen many of the same bubbles as Brighton, even if they were on a smaller and shorter-lived scale. William's father, Thomas, had been a carpenter and had profited well from the building boom and had afforded the family the ability to live in Hawley Square, one of the town's more fashionable and desirable middle-class areas. Now living comfortably, Thomas sought to invest much of his fortunes into other, more sustainable areas once the building boom had started to wane and took over the management of the White Hart Hotel, a popular and well-kept establishment on the Marine Parade overlooking the sea. The hotel passed into William's hands in 1823 after the death of Thomas, but William had much more of his father in him than perhaps even he realised, and he soon found himself tiring of hospitality and hankering to follow in his late father's footsteps. The building industry called to him, and in 1825 he took the first opportunity he could see, when a local competition to redesign the Holy Trinity Church was opened up to all entrants, with or without professional experience. For William, who was seeking a career change into architecture, it was a golden opportunity. Thomas was clearly a natural, and though it was his first ever design, he found himself beating out 23 other designs for the winning spot. For someone with no experience, and who was seeking a career change into architecture, it was a golden opportunity, and as the foundation stone of the church was laid in September of 1825, William found himself rubbing shoulders with all the local bigwigs and ballers, the men who had given the contracts and dished out the money. The completion of the church wound up to be only the first in a line of high-profile buildings designed by William, whose fame rose with great rapidity. He took on projects to design the Margate Lighthouse in 1828, along with the offices for the Pier and Harbour Company along the beachfront and the grand entrance to Levy's Bazaar, the town's largest and most central shopping district. It was a fantastic rise to fame for the self-taught architect, whose local reputation had jumped from strength to strength with each passing year and each completed project. On New Year's Day of 1828, William married Anne Christiana Byrne, the daughter of a Marines major, and thanks to William's new status as a successful architect, the new couple were able to buy their own house in Hawley Square, directly next door to the Theatre Royal. Keen to start a family, September that year saw the arrival of their first daughter, Christiana, and one year later, in September of 1829, their first son followed, who they named William. 
The family prospered, and soon William began seeing requests for his work from further and further afield. He kept himself busy, and over the next few years, the family welcomed two new daughters, Mary, who was born in April of 1832, and Louisa in January of 1833. By 1833, however, William had begun working far more often away from Margate, sometimes for weeks at a time. He completed contracts throughout the southeast of England and still had time to crank out a few more babies whenever he returned home. In April of 1833, their fifth child was born, a son named Frederick Thomas, but just as things appeared to be going so well, Frederick Thomas's birth signalled the beginning of what was to be deep-seated problems for the Edmund family. Sixteen months after his birth, their new son passed away in August of 1834, and one year later, what would have been their sixth child, a daughter named Ellen, sadly only survived for three months before she expired in December of 1835. It was an abrupt end to the couple's dream honeymoon period, and by 1840, William had seen work contracts slowly dry up and his salary slashed due to building reforms. Whilst far from destitute, they still maintained three servants, the family were now finding themselves having to be considerably more careful with money, and though they owned two properties, it failed to help them in any way, unable to secure any tenants to rent from them. Whilst William did his best to take on as much work as he could find, Anne busied herself with the day-to-day task of educating and raising their children. The two eldest, Christiana and William, had already been sent away to boarding school, whilst Anne taught the younger children in their home. Christiana boarded at Mount Albion House in Ramsgate, five miles south of Margate, whilst William stayed slightly further afield, 17 miles to the southwest in Kings, Canterbury. Kings was a respected school, founded in the 16th century, with tenuous links to a lineage that dated as far back as the 6th century. It was a school that would supply a Victorian pupil with an education fit to propel him into a successful university education and all but guarantee a career in the upper echelons. Conversely, Christiana, as a young lady, boarded at a school that sought only to prepare her for a life of marriage and instead taught his students lessons in English and French grammar, dancing, music, singing, good posture and religion, all the hallmarks of a fine young lady that would make a suitable wife for someone befitting her class. After she graduated in 1842, Christiana returned to the family home, where she met her new youngest brother, Arthur, who had been born in October of 1841. It was most certainly not all sunshine and rainbows in the Edmunds family home, however. During her absence, Christiana noticed her father's apparent change in demeanour. He had become prone to violent outbursts and fits of rage, and despite the family struggling financially, even finding themselves having to sell their second house, which they had been unable to actually do, he still stomped about the house, exclaiming at the top of his lungs that he owned millions of money. Whether it was the stresses of a new child or from the struggles of work, Christiana was not sure, but she definitely knew that her father was unwell and his mental stability appeared to be declining rapidly. In fact, it was something much darker and far more dangerous than Christiana would ever have guessed. William Edmonds was showing early symptoms of an illness termed general paralysis of the insane in Victorian England. This was more commonly known today as syphilis. Syphilis in the 19th century was a painfully common disease amongst men in their 30s and 40s. The symptoms were varied, with patients usually displaying one or more of the most common, being that of grandiose delusions, a staggering gait, disturbed reflexes, asymmetrical pupils, tremulous voice and muscular weakness. 
It was a bleak diagnosis and one that signalled a pretty unwelcome path towards eventual demise, usually after a prolonged stay in an asylum for the insane. Without having to delve too far into the realm of speculation, it seems fair to assume that with his work taking him far away from home from around about 1832 onwards, the death of two successive children in 1833 and the long absence of any further births until 1841, this explained by the statistic that a woman suffering from syphilis is 12 times more likely to suffer a miscarriage, that William had picked the disease up whilst dabbling outside the marital bed sometime in 1832 to 1833, and it had now began to take its toll. Within a year, Anne found herself signing off on the lunacy order required to ensure that her husband could be taken into care at the Southall Park Asylum, a private institution on the outskirts of London. While Southall Park was a step up from many of the state and county ran asylums, it was still no picnic for anyone of William's standing, and a severe fall from grace. Fortunately, the asylum was run by a husband and wife duo who practiced therapeutic treatment and pioneered a type of care that was only now beginning to be seen across the better funded and more pioneering hospitals in England. William was escorted by two attendants to the asylum in August of 1843, and upon his arrival, deemed as a dangerous lunatic by the asylum's resident physician. However, after just one year, he was released home and back with his family. This was much more likely to be due to costs rather than any improvement in his condition, and just eight months later, he was once again taken into care, this time to Peckham House, South London, in March of 1845. Peckham House was an old mansion house, surrounded by large gardens, and though the patients were of more mixed background than those of Southall Park, this time catering to paupers and criminals as well as the middle and upper classes, it was run by another pioneering doctor named Dr James Hill, a solid proponent of progressive care, who believed in the freedom of the patients and had long cast aside the notions of chaining them up to walls or of keeping them in restraints. This care was generally referred to as moral treatment, and it consisted of taking care of a patient's general needs, dietary, physical and mental. It also sought to train them up to work on the asylum's in-house farms and trades for men, or in needlework and laundry for women. Although the treatment was deemed progressive in the manner of care, the actual treatment of William's diagnosed general paralysis was anything but progressive when viewed through a modern lens. Bloodletting of the temples and behind the ears via leeches was common to cool down a patient's head and prevent them from overheating, whilst warm baths were used to treat a patient's overexcitement. Outside of this, there was little more that could be done for anyone suffering from general paralysis, and more often than not, it was a steady decline in mental faculties as well as physical ability until death approached. For William, this came on the 15th of March, 1847, two years after his admission. For Anne Edmonds, the death of her husband was a pretty horrific blow. She now found herself a widow with a large family to look after and a husband who had suffered a catastrophic fall from grace, both financially and socially. Mental health was very much a taboo subject in Victorian England, and with the concept of insanity running in families as popular as it was, a father dying in an asylum was a considerable stigma to place on the Edmund children and none would have felt this harder than Christiana, whose father's death ran parallel to her own coming of age. After schooling and preparing for a life of marriage within a cushy social class, she now found any such prospects pulled out from underneath her. It was clear that the family would need to make a clean break, 
And so, within the year, Anne had sold up in Margate and moved the children to Canterbury. In the mid-19th century, Canterbury was a mid-sized town of a little over 10,000 people. Its large cathedral ensured a healthy tourist trade and it afforded the town a strong economy that otherwise focused on brewing. Anne had moved into a small house above a brush, hat and basket shop at 21 St George's Street, owned by the tradesman and shopkeeper James Nash, who lived downstairs with his young family. The makeup of the Edmonds family had changed significantly by the time of their move, as the eldest son William had taken off to London to study medicine at the Royal College of Surgeons before moving to South Africa in 1854. Louisa was also in London, living as a governess in a household in Camberwell. Christiana and Mary both lived at home with Anne, though things remained difficult even after their move, which was no doubt made in hopes of getting a fresh start. Shortly after their move, Christiana began suffering from panic attacks, frequently bursting into her mother's room at night complaining about being unable to breathe. She was promptly diagnosed with hysteria, another typically Victorian catch-all condition which encompassed a wide variety of medical issues from epilepsy to PTSD. It was so wide-ranging in fact that it affected a significant portion of women at some point throughout their lives. The diagnosis was actually considerably older, dating as far back as the ancient Greeks, who blamed it on a woman's wandering uterus that would move throughout the body causing mayhem with whichever part of the body that it ended up at the time. With the arrival of the Enlightenment, the wandering womb theory had slowly began to fade away, but poor understanding of mental health persisted for a considerable period after, and though strides were made in anatomy, much was still poorly understood and often completely misunderstood. Theories on the origin of hysteria were variously floated, but largely remained anchored in a woman's inability to cope in situations that were at times only marginally outside the norm, such as mental overexcitement, the menstrual cycle or sexual frustration. With such a wide range of stimuli and symptoms, equally wide-ranging cures were practiced, including galvanism, a primitive form of electroconvulsive therapy. As Christiana struggled with her new diagnosis, realistically, a problem that was much more likely to have been a mental health issue following her father's death and the stresses of coming of age, her youngest brother Arthur too began to suffer from epilepsy. Once again, we see a medical condition in Victorian England that was poorly understood. Often, epilepsy was believed to be caused by excessive masturbation. It was, in fact, far more likely that Arthur was probably suffering from convulsions brought on through congenital syphilis, passed on to him through his mother's womb by his now late father, William. Still, in keeping with the times, Arthur's condition did nothing to alleviate the pressures on the Edmonds, who now had a second member officially diagnosed with a disorder of the insane and a very real potential of a third in Christiana. It was a heavy stigma to bear, and so, in 1860, Anne hospitalised Arthur in the Royal Earlswood Asylum, Hospital for Idiots, in Rygate, Surrey. Mary married soon after, leaving Christiana and Anne as the only members of the family left still living together. The pair moved to a smaller apartment, this time above a confectioner in Canterbury. In 1866, the troubles continued when Arthur died in the asylum, and one year later, in 1867, Louisa also died, aged only 36 years old. It was, perhaps, time to try the fresh start approach once more. And so, in late 1867, Anne and Christiana packed up and moved once more, this time further southwest 
to the booming town of Brighton. If nothing else, Anne surmised that the sea air and proximity to the beach might at least have some curative, relaxing effect on her daughter. She was soon to be proven very, very wrong indeed. When they arrived in Brighton, Anne and Christiana moved into a small rented house on Marlborough Place, one of the main streets that carved north through the city, a stone's throw from both the seafront and the Royal Pavilion. Whether it was the sea air or the dipping that had any effect, it does appear that the move to Brighton initially did affect Christiana positively, as there is little mention of hysteria in any record of their life in Brighton, though she did start to suffer from neuralgia, and as a consequence, signed up with a local doctor named Dr Charles Beard in 1869. Beard was a respected physician who owned a private practice on Grand Parade, opposite the Edmunds Marlborough Place residence. He also operated his own practice, and he worked at the Sussex County Hospital, as well as for the government as an inspector of vaccinations. His reputation locally was impeccable, and as a charismatic, successful doctor, 42-year-old, eternally single Christiana, soon found herself falling deeply into a romantic obsession. She wrote letters obsessively to the doctor, almost daily and often several times per day. For Anne, this was a problem for several reasons, but primarily it was because Dr Beard was happily married with three children. Anne, who had watched her daughter struggle in recent memory and just now begin to find her feet, was concerned that her daughter would not be able to handle the struggles of an unrequited love affair at such a crucial stage in her life. Anne deemed it as a crucial stage both because of the impending menopause, a period of life in Victorian England where women were thought to be prone to insanity, and also because with every year that advanced on her life, Christiana crept ever closer to an impending future of potential mental instability inherited from her father. Whatever the relationship was between Dr Beard and Christiana is somewhat of a mystery. Dr Beard himself always maintained that it was purely platonic on his part and that the love affair was always one-sided. However, at the very least, he maintained a reasonably intense line of communication through letters with Christiana for at least a year. During this time, Christiana would often visit his home opposite and also wound up as close friends with the doctor's wife, Emily. One night in September of 1870, when Dr Beard was away from Brighton on work, Christiana visited the Beard's home to see Emily and bought with her a box of chocolate creams from the local confectioner Maynard's. She handed them over to Emily, stating that they were a gift for the children, but took one out and actually force-fed it to Emily. Being taken aback, both by the sudden intrusion of being force-fed a chocolate and of the strange, metallic taste of the cream itself, Emily quickly spat it out, but attempted to let the situation slide. At least, she let it slide for a few hours, while she still remained well, as later that night, she was struck with a violent bout of diarrhoea and stomach cramps. When Dr Beard returned from work, Emily explained what had happened, and he instantly fell suspicious of Christiana, warning his wife not to get any more involved with her, and the very next day, he arranged to meet Christiana, and accused her outright of attempting to poison his wife. Christiana strongly refuted the accusation and told him of how she too had fallen ill after eating the same chocolates, but for the doctor, he had had quite enough of the situation and decided to cut ties with Christiana then and there. In fairness to Christiana at this point, the doctor here may easily have been judged for being overly harsh. During the 19th century, food, 
and especially confectionery, was often laced with all manner of chemicals and poisons which would never find their way into modern edibles. Ingredients such as bisulfate of lead, Phoenician mercury, zinc and arsenic-based food colours were disturbingly common. Sulfate of copper was used frequently in wines, preserved and fruit-based foods, whilst dangerous poisons like strychnine were used alongside bugs and other biological horrors in all manner of food. And all of these are long before the concept of accidental adulteration is even considered. It wasn't until the passing of the Adulteration of Food and Drinks Act in 1860 that any efforts were even made to restrict the uses of such ingredients, and even this act only worked as a suggestion rather than a compulsory law of compliance. Nevertheless, Dr Beard was wholly unimpressed, and he followed up his initial accusation with the second in January of 1871. It wasn't until Anne visited him with Christiana in tow and threatened him with legal action if he did not recant the accusation that he offered her any benefit of the doubt. For Christiana, the doctor's treatment was a harsh blow. She had fostered a one-way love affair that had appeared to cross over the border into an obsession and now, with what she perceived as her love thrown back in her face, she knew that she had to do something. Over the next few months, she devised a plan that she felt sure would smooth the matter over and bring her back into the doctor's good books. On 28th of March 1871, Christiana popped into Isaac Garrett's chemist on Queen's Road. She knew Isaac Garrett only in passing, as this was the chemist that supplied her with her neuralgia medicine previously. Introducing herself as Mrs Wood, she asked Garrett to buy a quantity of strychnia, which she told him was to poison some local stray cats that had been causing her grief, leaving her much annoyed. Garrett's first reaction was to deny the request. Strychnia was far too potent a poison just to eradicate a few cats, he reasoned. But after she assured him that she had no children in the house and that only she and her husband would handle it, he gave in and agreed to sell her the dangerous powder. By 1871, the buying and selling of such poisons had become slightly more convoluted. The Pharmacy Act of 1868 had restricted the sale of the most dangerous poisons by making them only purchasable from a chemist who was already familiar with the buyer or who was introduced to the chemist via a third party who was known to both buyer and seller. After the sale was made, the poison had to be correctly labelled, clearly marked as poison and detailed with the seller's name and address. And finally, as a last stage of protection, details of the transaction had to be logged into a poison book and signed by both chemist and buyer. To this end, Isaac Garrett suggested to Christiana, or as he now knew her, Mrs Wood, that she ask Caroline Stone to witness the transaction, a milliner who lived and worked in a shop just three doors down that both he and Christiana both knew. Christiana was not overly keen on the idea, but agreed to it and went into the hat shop. After awkwardly casting small talk around and buying a veil, she plucked up the courage to ask Mrs Stone if she would witness the transaction, telling her that her and her husband were naturalists and that she needed the strychnia for stuffing a bird. It was not an altogether usual request, but all the same, Mrs Stone agreed to do it, and back in the chemist's, the sale was made and locked into Garrett's poison book. March 28, 1871. Mrs Wood, Hillside, Kingstown. Strychnia, 10 grains, destroying cats. Despite the lack of any mention of stuffing a bird, Mrs Wood signed off on the sale and Christiana left the chemist with a lethal amount of poison in her possession. 
She had carried out the first stage in her warped plan to win back the friendship of Dr. Beard, and now she was ready to proceed with the next steps. Benjamin Coulthrop was perhaps Christiana's first victim of poisoning. The young paper seller that she had crossed paths with in late March in Spring Gardens, who had taken her chocolates and later came down with a violent illness that had lasted for over a week. At the time, his mother had taken him to the hospital, but despite all the symptoms being present, no suspicion had fallen on strychnine poisoning, and despite the immediacy of the onset of symptoms so soon after eating the chocolate that Christiana had handed to him, somehow the transaction had slipped completely out of the picture. In Victorian England, strychnine, despite its toxicity, was a reasonably common poison. In 1871, it was used for the most part as a form of pest control, but also it was used less commonly for medicinal purposes. Though it had no intrinsic medicinal properties itself, its convulsive effects were seen to be of use in some treatments, and as such, it was administered as part of medical treatment in small, non-lethal doses. As far as poisons go, however, it was intensely destructive, causing symptoms of burning throat, difficulty swallowing, anxiety and restlessness that would soon progress to the malfunctioning of the central nervous system as it worked to disrupt signals from the brain, causing violent muscle contractions that gradually increased in intensity, finally causing muscles to essentially give up as the lungs failed and asphyxiation ended a victim's life, potentially as quickly as within one to two hours after ingestion, in a state of some agony. The victim would often be twisted backwards, their head, neck and spine bending in a sickly, concave arch. Strychnine was a pungent substance too, with only half a milligram being enough to kill a dog and between 30 to 60 milligrams enough to kill a human. Although it had such a lethal action, it was rarely used in poisoning cases, accounting for only about 10% of all recorded cases of poisoning between 1750 and 1914 and it took a backseat to the far more popular arsenic as a weapon of choice due to its sharp, metallic, bitter taste. For whatever reason, perhaps due to its simplicity of purchase, strychnine had become Christiana's favoured vehicle to carry out her plan, and the poisoning of Benjamin Coulthrop was just the beginning. To put it simply, Christiana's plan was truly perverse. After Dr Beard had accused her of the attempt on his wife's life, she reasoned that if she could frame Maynard's the confectioner, this would lift the suspicion of guilt from her own shoulders, and thus, her relationship with Dr Beard would instantly be restored. In this respect, the poisoning of Benjamin Coulthrop had failed in Christiana's eyes. No poison was discovered, and as such, the boy's sickness had passed silently. If she was ever to be exonerated, she would need to cause a far greater fuss, and she endeavoured to do so. Christiana's next victim was the result of another targeted effort. Once again at the end of May, she returned to Spring Gardens and met with nine-year-old Emily Baker out playing in the street. She asked the young girl her name and then offered her a bag of Maynard's chocolate creams, and then she ducked out. Once more, however, it appeared that Christiana had failed. After several days of silence, she walked back to Spring Gardens and actually knocked on the door of the young girl's house, speaking to her mother. She introduced herself as a district visitor for the church and asked if anyone in the local area had fallen ill recently. Emily's mother, Harriet, having no reason to suspect Christiana's story, explained that her daughter had been vomiting for three days after eating some chocolates, but had now recovered. 
She also expressed to Christiana a desire to track down the woman who had given her daughter the bag of chocolates. Christiana promptly wrapped up the conversation and left the scene, returning home now armed with the knowledge that her plan had once again failed to rouse enough suspicion or drama to make any waves. After repeated failed attempts, Christiana realised that her plan needed a desperate rethink. After she spent a period milling over how she could better cause the stir she needed, she concluded that she needed to scale the entire operation up. To this end, she began paying young boys she would meet on the street to go into Maynard's and buy chocolate creams for her. When the boy returned with the sweets, she would then switch them with a bag of chocolate creams from her own pocket that she had previously poisoned and tell the boy that he had bought the wrong ones, then asking them to return them for her. The boy would then take the poisoned chocolates back to the store and the confectioner would replace them on the shelf for sale to the next unsuspecting customer. This plan, Christiana decided, would be able to be rinsed and repeated as much as she liked, effectively securing a constant stream of distribution across the town of poisoned chocolates. This situation, she felt, could not go unnoticed. After several efforts to poison the supply in this way, Christiana then took it upon herself to enter Maynard's herself and lodge a complaint. She told the confectioner that she had bought chocolates for her and her friend and that they had both fallen unwell after eating them. A second time, she told him, she had bought chocolates from the store, which had burnt her throat. As luck would have it, Maynard took chocolates very seriously and he was proud of his reputation in the town. He had been a confectioner in Brighton for over 18 years, and so, whilst he doubted Christiana's story, he was quite sure that he had never even used dangerous chemicals in any of his chocolates before, nor had he ever had a complaint, and he didn't hold poisons in his shop. Instead, leaving the issue of pest control to his cat, he still agreed to allow Christiana to carry out an independent chemical analysis on a selection of his sweets, and suggested Julius Schweitzer, a chemist who owned a shop just around the corner on the seafront street. Schweitzer heard Christiana's story and was initially very sceptical. He later said of her as seeming nervous and fanciful, but after he tasted one of the creams that she handed over to him, he quickly changed his tone, having recognising the familiar, characteristic, metallic zing of strychnine. Her job done as best she could do for now, Christiana left the chocolates with Schweitzer and took to the routine of poisoning the chocolate supply of Maynard's, one bag at a time. On the 15th of April 1871, Christiana went back into Garrett's chemist and purchased a second packet of strychnine, this time explaining that she needed the poison to destroy an elderly dog she owned. She and her husband were packing up shop and moving to Devon, she told him, that the dog was far too sickly and old for the journey. Once again with the help of the milliner Mrs Stone as witness, she left the chemist with a lethal batch of fresh powder. At this point, it's reasonably safe to say that Christiana's mental condition had rapidly deteriorated. Her obsession for Dr. Beard's attention, along with her scattergun, uncaring approach to poisoning anyone who could potentially further this goal, was unnerving enough. But on the 27th of May, there is a story involving Christiana that highlights just how far she had become unhinged. One of the servants in Christiana's household had seen her playing with the landlord's dog in the hallway, and had also noted that Christiana had dabbled with powders that often bore no labels. 30 minutes after the servant had taken notice of Christiana playing with the dog, it turned up dead, its spine twisted backwards. Later that day, the dog was taken to a taxidermist, 
who immediately took one look at the deceased animal and concluded that it had died through poison. Despite all the evidence, not even the servant initially suspected Christiana, who, for the most part, was protected by her class. Despite all of her suspicious behaviour until now, most assumed that a woman of such status was simply not a poisoner. It was a poor judgement of character, shrouded by social stereotypes, but one that worked perfectly into Christiana's favour, and one that was about to prove fatal. On the 12th of June, Charles Miller stepped off the train from London in Brighton Station and made his way down towards the seafront, stopping into Maynards along the way to pick up a bag of chocolates for his family. The Miller family were recent arrivals in Brighton, having moved down from Clapham in London on account of the mother's poor health. When Charles arrived home, he handed out the creams, giving one to his four-year-old nephew, Sidney, his brother Ernest, and then he ate some for himself. He noticed after biting into the chocolates that they had a tart, tarry taste, like a taste of a penny, but thought little of it until very soon after, when he fell ill and was so sick that the maid was quickly sent to fetch the local surgeon, James Tuke. Upon his arrival, Tuke questioned Miller, who mentioned eating the chocolate, but when the doctor tasted them for himself, he declared them perfectly ordinary chocolates and safe to eat, all suspicion of poison cast aside. Unsure of what to do next, the surgeon made Miller comfortable, diagnosed a bout of nervousness and left. But almost as soon as he had, Sidney, Miller's four-year-old nephew, too began to fall sick, crying endlessly. Once more, a doctor was sent for, and this time, physician Richard Rugg attended the unwell child. Recognising the unusual rigid stiffness in the child's limbs as a form of poisoning instantly, he sent for an emetic in an effort to purge his stomach. But sadly, within five minutes of Rugg's arrival, Sydney passed away before anything could be done. It fell to Rugg to inform the police of the boy's death, and he promptly did so, contacting both the Brighton police and the district coroner. Upon the arrival of police inspector William Gibbs, Rugg handed over the bag of chocolates and informed him that he felt quite sure that they had been the source of the poison that had made both Charles Miller sick and killed young Sydney. The following day, Rugg carried out a post-mortem on Sydney. He noted that the body was, in general terms, very healthy, though it had become unusually rigid. He also made note of Sydney's brain and that it had a small amount of damage in the form of being slightly congested, but in all other inspections, perfectly well, specifically writing down that the lining of the stomach showed no signs of irritation. The cause of death, he concluded, was nothing immediately obvious, though he still suspected poison, but he could not be sure by which one and how it was administered. Before wrapping up, Rugg drained a quantity of fluid from the child's stomach and preserved it in a jar, which he thought may be needed for later examination. On Tuesday the 13th of June, an inquest was held into the death of Sidney Miller at the Carpenter's Arms pub on West Street. The evidence given came mostly from Sidney's immediate family and focused around the types of chocolates that the family ate and, crucially, for Christiana's plan, the manufacturer and place of purchase was mentioned several times. This, of course, was later printed into the local paper, the Brighton Gazette. Finally, Christiana's plan was gaining traction. With the publication of the paper the following Thursday that detailed the inquest, news of Maynard's poisoned chocolates spread rapidly. As for the inquest itself, it had been adjourned awaiting the results of an examination of Sydney's stomach and fluids by Dr Henry Leatherby, a chemical analyst and public health official from London. Inspector Gibbs had taken the grim parcel to Leatherby himself on the 16th of June on advice from the coroner. 
whilst almost all officials at the inquest seemed to consider the death as a result of poison, it fell to Leatherby to provide some form of evidence. Meanwhile, people began to talk of Maynards, and Christiana jumped on the opportunity to cement the confectioner's troubles by dropping poisoned bags of Maynards creams in various shops, leaving them on counters and slinking off quietly, as if she had simply misplaced them. Until now, one of the biggest setbacks to her plan was that many of her victims were drifting by silently, either due to recovery without the need for hospitalisation or due to any lack of suspicion on the chocolates. With the publication of the story on Sydney's inquest, Maynard's was now bridging the gap in the plan and the chocolates were finally able to cause the suspicion that Christiana so desperately needed of them. Just as the inquest of Sydney Miller was about to resume, Christiana got an unexpected letter in the post. It appeared that her earlier complaint to Maynard's about poisoned chocolates had not gone as unnoticed as she had believed, and the letter was from the Brighton police, inviting her to attend the inquest as a witness. Her heart leaping from her chest, Christiana immediately took the letter to Dr Beard's house in order to show him. It was, she hoped, the first step towards her redemption. Unfortunately for Christiana, on this occasion, Dr Beard was too busy to see her, and dejected, she returned home and prepared herself to give testimony against Maynard's. The next day, the inquest resumed and among the primary witnesses to give testimony was Dr Leatherby. In summary, he stated that he had found a quarter of a grain of strychnia in the stomach contents of Sidney Miller, plenty enough to kill him, along with a heavy dose of strychnia inside some of the chocolates also handed to him by Inspector Gibbs. The evidence left him, no doubt, he said, that the child died from strychnine poisoning. It was then the turn of Christiana to give her testimony. I have bought chocolate creams at Mr Maynard's twice, once in September, which I thought made me ill. The young lady here present served me with them. Those I had in September had no nasty taste with them, but afterwards they made me ill. I had violent internal pains and burning in the throat. Those symptoms came on about an hour afterwards and I took some brandy, which made me worse, and then I took some castor oil. The pain and burning continued for about 20 minutes. On the 6th of March, I bought some more on purpose to try them. I ate a portion of one and gave some to a friend and they made her ill within 10 minutes. They had a nasty taste. I never tasted anything like it. It took away my taste all day. After I tasted it, I had burning in my throat. The saliva kept coming into my mouth and I looked livid. I felt burning hot and had a tightness around my throat. My sight was not affected, but my eyes looked very strange. I again took some brandy, and it made me worse. The analysis that was carried out by Schweitzer was then read out in full, along with the testimony from Mr George Robert Ware, Maynard's London supplier for French creams, who explained the process of making the chocolates, and adamantly stressed that no additives were used in their making, though he did admit that a poison had been used on their premises to kill vermin, and he could not be sure what poison had been used. At the conclusion of the inquest, much to Christiana's despair, the jury saw fit to vote in accordance with the coroner that Mr Maynard should be exonerated from any blame in the death of Sidney Miller. This was not according to script. Whilst the story had once again made the local paper on the following Thursday, it came with the softener that Maynard had gotten away free from blame with Christiana's attempt to frame him. Hoping it would be enough, Christiana wrote a letter to Dr Beard explaining her experience at the inquest. Caro mio, I have been so miserable since my last letter to you. I can't go on without ever speaking to you. 
I didn't enter into the poisoning case on the street, but I called and told Emily that I was obliged to appear at the inquest in a few days, and I hoped that she would send you a paper and let you know. But she said, no, she did not wish to unsettle you. However, dear, I mean you to know about this dreadful poisoning case, especially as I had to give evidence. I know how interested you would be in it, as you told me you would give anything to know what Lesposa swallowed. You fancy my feelings, standing there for, before the public, looking very rosy and frightened as I was, when I saw the reporter's pens going and taking down all I uttered. My dear boy, do esteem me now. I am sure you must. What a trial it was to go through that inquest. Lamadra was angry that I ever had the analysis, but you know why I had it. To clear myself in my dear friend's eyes. She always says nothing was meant by you. No, darling, you wanted an excuse for my being so slighted. I never think of it. It was all a mistake. I called on Lesposa and told her how I got on. She said my evidence was very nice. She didn't ask me to come, but perhaps she mustn't. Now there is no reason. Lamadra says if you were at home, she is sure you would ask me just the same as ever. Come and see us, darling. You have time now. Lamadra and I have been looking forward to your holiday to see you. She wants to know how you got on and how you like the North. Don't be biased by any relatives. Act as your kind heart tells you and make a poor little thing happy and fancy a long, long baccio from Dorothea. Quite why she signed off the letter as Dorothea, or why she slipped small snippets of Spanish into the letter, is anyone's guess. But it's painfully apparent that by this point, Christiana had completely lost touch of all reality concerning her relationship with Dr. Beard. For his part, Dr. Beard chose to ignore the letter completely, and eventually he did visit her, but only to tell her to cease writing letters to him. It was a further insult, and as such, it was clear to Christiana that the only option was to further step up her game against Maynard's. Over a period of three days towards the end of July, she wrote three letters to Arthur Miller, the father of the dead child, each one penned under a different pseudonym, imploring him to speak out against Maynard's and to pursue his conviction for his part in the death of his son. Miller, however, found the letters disturbing and instead took them to the police. After writing the letters, Christiana then devised a new way to get her hands on a greater quantity of poison. She could no longer use Isaac Garrett's shop after she had told him that she was moving out of town and so instead she forged a letter pretending to be another local chemist and paid a young boy named Adam May to deliver it. The letter posed as a request for a chemist, asking for a loan of arsenic until their own stocks could later be refilled. This was a practice that was quite common throughout the trade. Fortunately, Garrett denied the request. The following day, she wrote a second letter, this time posing as the local coroner, asking for the loan of Garrett's poison book. This time, her ruse was successful, and upon receiving it, she tore out pages either side of the pages that detailed her own purchases, where she had used it in the name of Mrs. Wood. Once she had done this peculiar action, she returned the book to the boy and asked him to take it back to Garrett. It was a further strange ruse. Why had she not removed the pages that detailed her own purchases? Had she intended to tear out the pages surrounding it in order to create a red herring? Either way, it was all very strange behaviour. Recognising Garrett as a dead end for procuring poisons, she then instead turned towards a new chemist, discovering Samuel Bradbury. Bradbury was closing shop and leaving Brighton soon, and so she wrote to him requesting to buy his entire remaining stock of three ounces of arsenic, which he happily sold to her. Christiana's next step was to make a trip to Margate. 
She told her mother that she wanted to visit some old friends and see her childhood home, but in reality, she had an altogether different reason to take a break from Brighton. During her day trip, she posted parcels from Margate back to Brighton containing various poisoned sweets, cakes and fruits to Emily Beard, Dr Beard's wife, Jacob Boys, a well-known solicitor, William Curtis, the editor of the Brighton Gazette, Isaac Garrett, the chemist, George Tatham, a surgeon and Brighton Borough Magistrate, and lastly, one package to herself, complete with an incorrect spelling of her name. It seemed like a further scattergun approach, but there was some semblance of method behind her madness. All of the people that she had targeted with poison parcels were from high-profile families, and it was almost impossible to poison a single one of them without making waves. Upon receipt of the parcels, several members of each household fell sick, though in many cases it was the servants and maids who bore the brunt of the poison. Christiana actually ate her own poisoned produce and made herself sick, reporting to the doctor who then went on to report the incident to the police. All the while that she was acting out her bizarre scheme, Christiana had been blissfully unaware, or at least blissfully ignorant, of just how suspicious she had been acting. But her behaviour had not gone completely unnoticed. Inspector Gibbs had been tracking witnesses involved in all the many reports involving Maynards around the town for some time, and one constant that he noticed was always amongst all the reports was the presence of a mysterious woman at the scene, and always they matched Christiana's description. Completely unbeknownst to her, Inspector Gibbs was slowly pulling in a large net that encircled Christiana, and he was extremely keen to put his own suspicions to the test. Gibbs visited Christiana while she was suffering from the effects of the poison, and he asked to see the parcel that she had received. He removed the label, which Christiana was keen to point out had an incorrect spelling of both her name and address, and as he made to leave, she remarked to him, How very strange. I feel certain that you'll never find it out. It was an ominous line, and one that Gibbs must surely have taken up as a challenge for he was quite sure that much of the suspicion lay with Christiana, and he thought he had just the way to prove her wrong. In possession of all the labels from the parcels, along with a whole slew of other articles of evidence written by hand relating to the case, Gibbs wrote to Christiana, asking her on what date she had bought the chocolates from Maynard's. He knew the date already, of course, but that was besides the point. Always keen to help the police when it came to fingering Maynard's, Christiana wrote back to Gibbs immediately, and when he received the letter, the final part of his plan was complete. He now had a verified copy of Christiana's handwriting, and he sent all of the articles off to a handwriting expert, Frederick Nethercliffe, in London. Nethercliffe was, at the time, one of, if not the only true expert on handwriting analysis in the country. He had been trained in the art by his own father, Joseph, who had pioneered the art before him. His CV in regards to criminal handwriting analysis, he boasted, saw him having given evidence to almost every court in the land. Meanwhile, the police issued a public notice, offering a £20 reward for information on who might have sent the parcels, published in the Brighton Gazette on the 17th of August. Borough of Brighton, £20 reward. Whereas some evil disposed person has lately sent to different families in Brighton parcels of fruit, cakes and sweets, which have been found to contain poison, the particulars of two of which cases are stated at the foot hereof. Notice is hereby given that whoever will give information to the undersigned, as shall lead to the apprehension and conviction of the offender, will be paid a reward of £20. 
When he saw the notice, deciding it was finally time to risk his reputation, Dr. Beard finally visited Inspector Gibbs and relayed all the information concerning his relationship with Christiana. In his testimony, he maintained that the relationship had been purely platonic, and he explained that he had not visited the police and given the information earlier due to his concerns of a scandal coming out that might harm his reputation in the area as a physician. Beards' testimony was finally enough for Gibbs, and an arrest warrant was issued for Christiana. He personally visited her at home and took her under arrest, transporting her directly to Lewis Prison, where she awaited her hearing in front of the Magistrates' Court the next morning on the 18th of August. The hearing made big news around Brighton. Finally, Christiana's actions had got people talking, but not for the reasons that she had always hoped. After a long day of evidence against her, the hearing was adjourned, awaiting further evidence for one week. Christiana was denied bail, and a reward of £2 to each of the young boys that Christiana had employed to deliver her forged notes around town was issued if they were to come forward with information. A week later, the second day of the hearing opened, and further evidence was piled up against Christiana, this time from Isaac Garrett, who identified Christiana as the woman who came to his shop to buy strychnine under the false name of Mrs Wood along with several other witnesses who all firmly ID'd Christiana as being involved with the poisoning. At the end of the second day, the court was once again adjourned to await the result of the handwriting and toxicology analysis. The third day opened one week later still, on the 31st of August. This time, additional charges of the attempted murder of Isaac Garrett and Elizabeth Boys were added to the initial charge of the murder of Sidney Miller. Gibbs's masterstroke employing Frederick Nethercliffe paid off handsomely when he told the court that in his thoroughly expert opinion, each and every letter, note and parcel label was written in the same hand, which matched the known handwriting of Christiana, though she had made deliberate attempts to conceal this fact. The toxicology results were equally as damning and reflected once more the state of Christiana's mind when they stated that very little effort was made to conceal the poison and that much of the fruit that she had sent in the parcels were literally stuffed with dangerous quantities of arsenic. When all the evidence was given, Christiana's defence did not even take the opportunity to cross-examine any witnesses. Christiana was taken to her cell in Lewis Prison to await trial, whilst a new inquiry into Sidney Miller's death was opened, this time with new evidence of the letters sent to Sidney's father from Christiana, along with testimony from Dr Beard. In conclusion, the magistrate read out the verdict, demanding that Christiana was to stand trial for the murder of Sidney and the attempted murder of Emily Beard and Elizabeth Boys. The entire time the verdict was read out, Christiana never flinched a muscle, remaining perfectly calm and self-possessed. Christiana's cell in Lewis Prison contained very few of the creature comforts that she was so accustomed to. Though she was permitted to wear her own clothes whilst imprisoned, a decision enacted by the prison physician on account of her mental health, her cell contained only a hammock, pillow, blanket, dustpan and brush, soap tin, comb and her eating utensils. For two months she sat in her cell taking her food privately and never once admitting guilt nor showing any remorse for her crimes. Outside the prison walls, the public opinion was one of severe hatred. Her story had broken national headlines after the magistrate's hearing and the unusual circumstances had bled out into the wider world. The opinion against her, in fact, was so poor that officials held private concerns that they would be unable to find an unbiased jury to sit through her trial. Due to this, her trial was moved from Brighton to the Old Bailey London, where they hoped distance might ensure a fairer jury. In preparation, 
Christiana was moved to Newgate Prison and the date was set for her trial for the 8th of January, 1872. Christiana's mother hired a defence lawyer, John Humphreys Parry, who, perplexed by the whole thing, quickly recognised that his only hope of any defence at all was to plead insanity. Parry organised a meeting between Christiana and a team of top psychological doctors, including Edmund Jonas, the governor of Newgate Prison and prison surgeon, William Wood, a London physician, Henry Maudsley, a psychiatrist and professor of medical jurisprudence at University College London, and Charles Lockhart Robertson, the former superintendent of Sussex County Asylum. During their meeting, the group found Christiana to be indifferent to the position that she was currently in, and thought she seemed to lack the proper understanding of the severity of the situation, lacking immoral feeling. The most marked symptom is the utter insensibility shown by the prisoner to the position she is placed in, and the danger that she runs. Her whole mind is centred on her letters to Dr Beard, on his conduct in allowing his wife to read them after all that had passed between them, and on the horror she would feel, not at being tried for murder, but at these letters being read in her hearing in court. She further dwelt on her certain belief that Dr Beard desired the death of his wife, even by poison, and that though too cautious to speak of it directly, he had hinted at it, and that if so, she knew that he would marry her. There was no emotion or anguish shown during my two searching examinations. From these facts I conclude that, whilst the prisoner has, in the abstract, without question the knowledge of right and wrong, and knows that to poison is to commit murder, she is so devoid of all sense of moral responsibility that she cannot be regarded as conscious of right or wrong, or morally responsible, in the sense which other men are so. Her family history of insanity, epilepsy and idiocy points to the insane temperament and is consistent with the deduction that the prisoner is morally insane. With the conclusion given, Christiana's plea for insanity was neatly lined up, and after a brief delay, her trial began on the 15th of January, 1872, opening with Christiana pleading not guilty to a packed house, who witnessed her sat in the box, a young, bright and not uncomely lady, as the papers had described her. During the trial, the defence did not even try to refute any of the evidence levied against Christiana. Instead, leaning into the insanity plea and appealing to the jury to take note of her family history of insanity, the prosecution struck back, stating that several witnesses thought that she knew fairly well the difference between morally right and wrong, and that the hereditary nature of insanity was outdated nonsense and medical claptrap. In his summary, the judge reminded the jury of her coolly calculated planning throughout her poisoning spree and were then sent out to deliberate on the outcome. After just over one hour, they returned their verdict of guilty on all charges, and the judge donned his black cap and delivered a sentence of death. Throughout the entire affair, Christiana had only showed one burst of emotion, when her mother took to the stand. Otherwise, she remained stoic and cool throughout. The trial was not to end so cleanly, however, as when the judge asked her if there was any reason that she should not be executed for her crimes, she stated that she was pregnant. It was a nonsense that was patently false, but the letter of the law stated that she had to be examined, and so a jury of matrons was hastily sworn in, made up of the 12 women from the courtroom, whilst a surgeon was found to carry out the exam from the crowd. It was quickly determined that she was absolutely not pregnant. The result was read out, and Christiana was removed from the courtroom, back to her cell in Lewis, to await her execution. As one might expect by now, the case of Christiana Edmonds is never a straightforward one, and there was one final twist. 
in a dramatic about-face. Public opinion swung heavily after the guilty verdict was given, and several appeals were written concerning the death penalty and her mental health. The Home Secretary received pardon pleas from several sources nationwide, and in response, hired Dr. William Gull and Dr. William Orange to examine her in Lewis Prison. The two physicians concluded that she had confused and perverted feelings, concluding that she was of unsound mind and her pardon promptly granted, instead committing her to imprisonment in Broadmoor Asylum. Whilst this was seen as a victory to some of the public, many more, including several newspapers, saw it as a perversion of justice, used to protect a guilty murderer, not based on her mental condition, but on her status in society, and saw it as an attack on the working classes, with the middle and upper classes protecting their own. In any case, on the 5th of July 1872, Christiana was removed to Broadmoor, where she was to spend the rest of her days. During her imprisonment, she routinely showed signs of habitual and obsessive deception. She would conceal letters written home and have them smuggled out of prison, despite the fact that she was actually free to write at any time that she liked. This behaviour extended beyond the letters, and her room was often turned over, with officers finding many small items hidden away that needn't have been a problem. In October of 1880, she wrote a letter of appeal pleading for release, which was promptly denied. Slowly but surely, as the years ticked by, all memories of Christiana Edmonds faded from the public attention. She died in Broadmoor, aged 79, on the 19th of September 1907 from senile debility, or essentially old age. In later years, many people have returned to the case of the chocolate cream killer to try and make sense of Christiana's actions. Scarily, Whilst only one death was recorded due to her poisonings, it's impossible to plot an accurate figure for how many people were either injured or even killed from eating the chocolates, as so many of the poisonings passed by without suspicion. Many theories have been put forward, both detailing the exact nature of the relationship between Christiana and Dr. Beard, and also on the true nature of Christiana's mental instabilities. One modern interpretation of her issues diagnosed her with narcissistic personality disorder, noting her intense need for attention in her later life during her imprisonment, along with her obsessive need to deceive and lie. Whatever the case, it is clear that she was a woman with many troubles, and her case remains, though largely forgotten, one of the more bizarre examples of poisoning in an era that was home to so many. So that was the chocolate cream killer. It, I actually think probably the most bizarre case of poisoning that I've come across in all of my dark histories reading. Absolutely mental. Um, but quite an interesting story. And I think Christiana's really interesting and, and a lot to dig into there. So we're going to have a quick look at that after these short ad breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, 
multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app. And if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, You gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So, Christiana, interesting one. Like, The story in general is quite interesting. I suppose, firstly, one of the most disturbing parts about this story for me is just how little we know how much damage it caused. So we know that it killed Sidney Miller, the four-year-old boy, but there's like a fairly heavy chance that it killed more. When you think about how she was distributing the chocolates and for how long she was distributing the chocolates, at the very least it injured, like, you know, or caused a sickness in... Probably thousands, you would think, or at least hundreds of people, right? So that I thought that was quite interesting. So she she must have definitely poisoned at least hundreds. Whether or not she killed a, like a significant number is probably another thing. It seems she wasn't really great at figuring out the correct dosage to actually kill someone. Just the maths. If she was poisoning that many people, she must have killed more. And the only reason she, you know, we obviously don't know about how many people died. It's just simply because there was no suspicion on the chocolates until much, much later. So, yeah, that's, like, 
probably the first sort of really disturbing thing about this case that also makes it quite unusual is, is the amount of victims. We just have no idea who, how many they are. But then on top of that, you've got Christiana, which, I mean, wow, she was terrifying. But there are questions behind how mental she was, right? So she was definitely unwell. You have to say, like, you know, her mental instability was obviously pretty bad. But I feel like Dr. Beard gets away remarkably lightly because there are a few kind of bits and pieces dripped in here, which I feel like if you read between the lines, they say a little bit more than what they're letting on, I think, or or it leads you to be able to speculate on the relationship, essentially, between the Doctor and Christiana. And, I mean, he maintained the whole time that it was purely platonic, and perhaps that's true, that you have to guess that he was at the very least leading her on for quite a while. Perhaps he liked the fact that it was a younger woman chasing him. And so, you know, he kind of humoured that. You know, that's quite a common scenario. Um, even if, you know, he, he never thought that it would lead anywhere sort of physical or, or to any realistic outcome, like romantic outcome or anything like that. Perhaps he enjoyed the flattery of the situation and so he kind of continued it. You could also say that he just, perhaps he just enjoyed her friendship, but I would be inclined to believe that he kind of enjoyed the flattery of a younger woman being interested in him and he sort of maintained this kind of quite intense communication with her for over a year. So you could say that he kind of had a hand in this a little bit more than he lets on. Probably the the most interesting line for me in all of this is um, when she was getting uh, like a psychoanalysis later um, to decide whether or not she was mad or not and he writes that she was adamant that the doctor had hinted at her potentially poisoning her his wife and if she would do so that that they could then be like free to marry and i wonder how much of that she made up how much of that was her delusion and how much of it was potentially true you know did dr beard sort of slip that into a conversation once. Maybe if it was even like offhand or something, maybe he didn't think too much of it, but maybe he did. Maybe he really did kind of hint that perhaps if she was to be bumped off, it wouldn't be such a bad thing and they could then go and get married or something. You never know, right? He's obviously not guilty. He's not to blame for what Christiana, Christiana did. But you have to say that he was, you know, in in the front seats of the motivations of Christiana to poison all this stuff. The fact that she went and did it obviously shows just how unwell she was. And it's, again, like, it all comes to speculation, but how much did Dr. Beard know of her mental instability? Because when they first moved to Brighton and she was with Dr. Beard for her neuralgia, there's not really any sort of records of her talking about hysteria. So... Maybe he didn't really know that. Maybe she concealed it quite well to him. I don't know. But I don't know. I mean, her letters are pretty crazy. The letter that she writes to him that I quoted is very bunny boiler, isn't it? It's terrifying. It's also massively pretentious with that, like, slipping in, like, La Madre 
and La Spousa or La Spousa, uh, you know, like drip, dripping and dropping like little bits of Spanish into it. What a pretentious beast. But uh, it's kind of beside the point, I guess. But that guy, but interestingly, like, I think all of that stuff just goes to show like how unhinged she actually was because it's quite hard to grasp that from paperwork, you know. Like we read paperwork that that sort of shows the story and we can get an idea of the story like an overview but obviously we don't ever really speak to her so we don't really know but when you read that that letter to dr beard and that it does show like wow she was really out there but when we get things like we read the letter and and when when you finally see how she poisoned the fruit to the point you know where she had made no effort to even disguise it yeah, she travelled to Margate to send them and wrote like her own name wrong and stuff. These are almost like childish ways of deception, and and you can see there like that kind of obsessive drive to be deceptive and deceive that came like much later in her life to be like an obsession, but quite terrifying, definitely terrifying. I say there's quite a lot of speculation we can have all day really on on Christiana, but I'll leave that there for now. I really enjoyed the fact that it was obviously really local to me. Like all it say, like at the start, like all of these street names and even addresses, uh, places that I remember. So a, a really interesting example is where one of the places that she lived um, is actually a pub now. Um, and I've been there like hundreds of times in my life. Um, it's not a particularly nice pub, but it's uh, a pub that is very central in town and, and you almost can't avoid it if you've lived here because eventually sometime you're going to meet someone there for a drink or go there like you know just as a matter of like convenience almost for like socializing or even like business and you know things like that so I've been there hundreds of times and it's really weird to know that actually way back in the day that was her house um so I found that really interesting and and that pretty much goes for every address like almost every address in this is now something that I've kind of even if I haven't been in there I've visited uh, you know I've walked past hundreds on hundreds if not thousands of times in my life so that was really fascinating um i guess i know now the feeling of where sometimes i get emails from people saying oh I'm, I'm really glad to hear this episode because it's local to me or whatever and i guess i know that feeling now it's pretty weird right <laughs> so yeah if you have any thoughts get in touch uh contact at darkhistories.com uh you can do so um and also on all social media and such uh if you would like to find any of them hit up darkhistories.com you'll find our website there and it's got like all of my social media and all the ways that you can contact me and all the ways that you can support the show as well if you'd like to do that and if you would that would be greatly appreciated thanks very much for listening if you enjoyed it and you can please leave a review we've had like a bit of an uptick on reviews um over the last few weeks so if you have been someone that left a review thank you so much it does help out so you know i do appreciate that it helps people to sort of you know make their decision if they're going to download it in the first place so it's actually like a really hugely important part of the podcast so thank you so much for for your input and your reviews that's that's really appreciated otherwise thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed it have a great couple of weeks um we've got a live stream will be coming up next saturday if you're interested that'll be taking part on youtube and you can get involved you can come on the live stream and actually talk or you can just type in the chat and we keep an eye on it um and and it's sort of a free-for-all, like unstructured free-for-all, where we just talk about, we sort of start talking about the episodes and it, it generally tends to go off track pretty quick. 
but it's fine. Say it's like an unstructured free for all. Everyone's welcome to come along. If you want, say, if you want to jump on the live stream, everyone is welcome to come on and actually sort of take part. Um, it's great fun. Um, it's just like an open season, basically. So yeah, if you'd like to come along to that, see you next Saturday. If not, I'll see you in a couple of weeks for another episode. So thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you really soon. So thanks very much for listening. Sleep tight. <laughs>